Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On Tape Podcast. I'm Dan Nathan, joined by Guy Adami. Guy, welcome. Where's EY from SoFi? Oh, there it is, right out of the gate. Um, right out of the gate. Taking a little her time, I think, okay? And that's fine. She's entitled. Like, she's going to come back ready to go. Right. Get back. But here's Let me the ask thing. you a quick question before yeah. we get into it. Wouldn't her time be our time if you uh, think I about see, it that way? So I, I did there. I see what you did there, Mr. Hand. It is Here's fast times in the market, by the way. Let's get into that. It is fast times. We got a lot to discuss here. We have a, a market that is absolutely melting up. On the year, the S&P 500 is only up about 1.5%. We're recording this Monday in and around the open, and the futures are indicated up 30 basis points. So off to the races. Some of the uh, usual suspects guy driving uh, a little bit of the action. We're going to get into earnings this week. We have some big tech names starting to report. And really the bulk of the MAG-7 is going to come uh, next week. So we're going to talk uh, a bit about earnings. We have some economic data that could be dictating the course of, or at least the perception of rate cuts that are quickly dwindling as far as the March meeting. I think we have maybe a 46% chance. That's the CME Fed funds tracker there. So we'll talk a little bit about the data and the dot plots. You and I are also going to sit down with Ron Biscardi. He is the founder and the CEO of iConnections. They are a sponsor of this fine podcast. And we are going to be down at their Global Alternatives Conference next week in Miami Beach with thousands of investors and allocators. And we're going to get a read on what some of the uh, expectations are there in and around the markets by some of the biggest money putting it to work, at least from an investing standpoint, an allocating standpoint. And that's going to be Ron, Kai. And we also have China melting down as the U.S. is melting up. Do you want to start there? Because this is an interesting juxtaposition, if you will. The Shanghai Composite is trading at its 
COVID lows, can't get out of its own way. It's interesting, a lot of these kind of early 2024 predictions that we hear from investors and pundits and the like, a lot of people want to like China here because the sentiment's so bad, but it keeps getting worse as the U.S. market apparently gets better. If you're looking at through the lens of a couple different things, so FXI is obviously the first thing I guess people will punch up on their screen outside of obviously the indexes specific to China, but the FXI is the one we'll look at here. And below 21, which is the indication right now, we're obviously taping this Monday morning. That would be the lows we've seen 16, 17 or so years ago, and we'd be breaching the lows that we saw in October of 2022, which is Remarkable if you think about it. So there's clearly something going on. Now, the problem I have, of course, is when things are going well in China, that obviously adds to the bullish thesis here in the United States. China's very important, I get it. But when seemingly things deteriorate, people don't seem to take that into consideration. Now, quite frankly, maybe they're right not to, because as you said, the S&P is effectively at all-time highs and NASDAQ is off to the races. But I guess the question one has to ask themselves is, at what point, if any, is the weakness in China going to have ramifications here in the United United States. And as of now, the answer is it has none whatsoever. I got to believe that's just a matter of time as well. And that's just one of the other many concerns that I've had for quite some time now, Dan. Yeah. No, it's interesting to me that the FXI, which is a bunch of the large, and we know the names, the Alibaba, so Tencent, so some of the big tech companies, but it also has some big banks, it has some big industrial companies in there. And, and to your point, it's really near those 2022 lows. It's below its COVID lows. If you look at the Shanghai Composite, it's just a few percent away from its COVID lows, that the Hang Seng in Hong Kong is getting absolutely destroyed today. So there's something there that local investors are a bit worried about at a time where the Chinese have indicated that they want to at least stimulate their economy a bit. They want to support markets a bit. There was an article over the weekend, and I know we spent some time, I think it was probably in the fall, talking about the youth unemployment rate and what that could mean for the Chinese economy. But it's an interesting split screen. And I put it in our group chat a little bit is that we keep hearing about new measures of youth unemployment. So the, the Chinese are trying to, I think, fudge the data there a little bit to make yep. it not look so bad. And then on the flip side, some of the smartest people that I know on economics and, and basically geopolitics in general, they keep pointing to the fact that this changing demographic in China by like 2050, they are going to go from 1.3 billion people or so down to below 1 billion, maybe as low as eight or 900 uh, a billion people, which is astounding. And the implication for their economy. When you look at the Middle East, which is so quickly trying to scurry away from their dependence on oil, right? And you look at China, which is dependent largely on this very cheap manufacturing, right? And they have their share of natural resources. There are some really interesting demographics underfoot here. And so again, I, I don't know what it means, but Chinese investors, we get made fun of as pundits all the time, Guy. Remember there was a time last year when I think all of us on the desk on Fast Money said Chinese equities were uninvestable and then they proceeded to rally 20%. They really are uninvestable for all intents and purposes if you're just thinking about it through the lens over the last few years of a U.S. investor and where opportunities are, what we rely on. But I'm just curious because to me, it's getting close, Guy, because the seven uh, can't get too much worse. percent And I think if I'll go back in time, I think it was early June, late May of last year on a Monday when the weekend you had similar news as that we're hearing now. And the network talked about the uninvestability, and that's a word I just made up, of China. And we actually talked about potentially that being capitulation. Now, 
in retrospect, they're right. China was uninvestable then, but China's also very tradable. And that, I think, was the point we tried to make back then. And we did it through the lens of an Alibaba, I think, which proceeded to rally somewhere between 35 and 45% over the next couple of weeks. That stock, though, again, if you wake up this morning, you're talking about a stock that probably has a 67, 68 handle, the lowest we've seen in quite some time. So it's been deteriorating now for the last three years, as has been the FXI, quite frankly. But along the way, there have been opportunities to trade it from the long side. So it's interesting choice of words. I'm not saying that you're using that market pundits use investability. Yes, I would say again, right now, given all the unknowns, it's uninvestable, but it's certainly very tradable. And maybe today's going to be another one of those days. I'll be looking at Alibaba in terms of the volume that it trades, maybe see some capitulation. It typically trades about 21 million shares a day. We'll see what it does today. But those are the signs you're working about, but to you're looking for it. But to your other point, at what point does it have ramifications here in terms of their economy? Because they have a demographics problem. And I don't think the market is properly considering it here in the United States. Yeah. And just to your point about Alibaba and one of the reasons why so many folks focus on that one, obviously it's a huge part of the FXI, right? So if you're looking at US listed names where you think you have a certain level of security from a transparency standpoint, they have $112 billion in cash, okay, less than $25 billion in debt, $176 billion market cap. So you do that on an enterprise basis. This stock is really cheap relative to almost every peer in China and then many of its U.S. peers and then expected to its growth. So to me, at 67 and a half, which is where it's trading right now, guy, the low in 2022 was 58 bucks. You can just do the math there. This thing gets really cheap really quickly on its way down if you do have a sort of capitulation. But I think you're main point about what China growth or lack thereof means for the rest of the world. We have an S&P 500 that is back at all-time highs, as we just discussed. We have the S&P 500, at least investors, okay with a 10-year yield in around 4% with an S&P trading about 19 and a half times forward expectations. This was a, a tweet over the weekend from Andy Constan, who's been on Fast Money with us, mm-hmm. and we should probably have him on the pod. And I thought this was a really good one. So if we're going to talk about expected growth and we're going to talk about expected rate cuts this year, so this is what Andy is tweeting about. The Fed dot plot assumes three cuts in 2024. Three factors drive that assumption. One, inflation falling. Two, real GDP falling. And three, monetary policy. Lately, the market and policymakers have focused entirely on number one, but number two and three matter as well. To validate the three cuts, GDP is projected to fall from two 2.6 to 1.4% in 2024. If it doesn't, then almost all the cuts in 2024 would not likely manifest. For 2023, great progress in fighting inflation has occurred, but that's last year's story at best. This will be about how the real economy handles current rates. Will GDP fall a lot or will it be stronger for longer? For now, I pick the latter. I want to get your take on this because, again, the Fed dot plots are assuming 1.4% GDP. We're going to get Q4 GDP, I think, Thursday morning, which is expected to be 1.7%. So a recession would be two negative consecutive quarters of GDP. We really won't know that until after the fact, but the stock market usually should start to discount that if we start seeing weakening data. Thoughts on that? Because I think this is a really important tweet. He's saying inflation falling was last year's story, real GDP falling, and monetary policy are 2024. 
Yeah, I think that's probably right. I think we all understand what's going on, on the inflation front. And again, falling, yes, but basically going up slower than it has been going up. It's Inflation is still going higher. But again, nuance, but important to point out. But GDP is probably the story for 2024, because let's just say, to a certain extent, the Fed has slayed that inflation dragon or in the midst of doing so, right? The next bogey they obviously have is going to be the economy and on the broader front in terms of GDP. But more importantly, even than that, I think, in terms of the unemployment rate, now that's either working for them, if you believe in a soft landing, or working against them a little, if you think that they probably want the unemployment rate somewhere north of 4.5%. So the rate cuts are predicated on a number of things. But if unemployment remains sticky with a 3738 handle or so, and GDP doesn't crater, one has to ask themselves, what's the impetus to cut rates in 2024? There's really no reason to do so. Again, going back to the market, so much of the market rally, I think, has been predicated on the belief that we're going to have four or five or six rate cuts this year. And I just don't understand why that would happen unless, as you pointed out, and a number of people pointed out, something is breaking along the way. Listen, it's January. We had that first week of the year where we saw the Magnificent Seven sell off. A lot of folks were doing victory laps, right? Like they were like, well, that was it, people. We just needed to get through the end of the year and people were waiting to sell some of the biggest leaders. You know, when I think about earnings season guy that is quickly upon us, and I think about expectations for S&P earnings growth in 2024, a lot of it is still predicated on the performance of that mag seven. And so like you tell me a lot of folks were getting excited about the broadening out of the rally towards the end of the year. It just didn't really seem to materialize. The fact that they got right back to some of the biggest names. NVIDIA is up 20% on the year. This is nearly a 1.4 trillion dollar market cap company. Drove a ton of the performance in the S&P 500 last year up 230%. So we have Apple, which is down five and a half percent after three downgrades in the first 10 days of the year got upgraded. Now it's unchanged on the year. We're looking at Microsoft up 6% on the year. Google is up 5% on the year. Amazon's up a couple percent. Meta is up nearly 9% or something like that. So look around, man. It's the same story as 2023, but now it really comes down to what are expectations for growth outside the U.S.? What are expectations for cuts? Because to your point, If some of these dynamics, whether it be unemployment just stays stuck where it is or whatever, right? If we end up being in a stagflationary environment and the Fed can't cut and the long and variable lags, right, that we've heard about now for two years since the Fed started raising interest rates, Mm -hmm. if they start to kick in, might we be in a period that maybe it's great for people who are looking for jobs. There's plenty of jobs. Maybe it's great for wage inflation, right? But maybe we are stuck in a sub 2% GDP environment, right? And maybe margins don't go higher for S&P 500 companies. And therefore that should weigh on S&P valuations that are trading above five and 10 year averages per fact set, which I think we're trading about 19 and a half times expected 2024. Yeah, I think that's right. And then obviously that leads to what type of earnings environment are you going to see under those set of circumstances? I think the consensus, and I don't have it necessarily in front of me, but I want to say it's $240-ish in terms of earnings. We'll see how that comes out. 
But the other side of that equation, again, that you bring up is what is happening in terms of the yield curve, which people seemingly have forgotten about. Two years versus 30 years has flattened out. So that's one of those pretty good indicators. And Liz Young talks about it all the time. The inversion is when the clock starts. It's the re-steepening of the yield curve is when you have to start to get worried about things. Now, two tens is probably hovering, depending on the day, anywhere from 20 to 35 basis points or so, still inverted. But what happens if that starts to flatten and then re-accelerate or steep. And that's obviously over the years been a bit of concern. Now, Dan Greenhouse, who we had on the podcast, I want to say two or three weeks ago, pointed out that there's probably enough data to support my argument. It's a handful of times that's happened. And that's fair. But with that data, it still suggests that once you start to see this re-steepening, typically bad things happen on the back end. I guess on the company front and the earnings front, just going back to this is an article in the Wall Street Journal last Tuesday, the 16th, which I thought is interesting, especially on a week that saw the market make or close at a new all-time high. Profits come back paired with rate cuts make a powerful mix, Guy. Companies put the earnings recession further behind them in the fourth quarter, even as rates are set to start falling. Profits are growing again, and the Federal Reserve looks as if it will start cutting rates sometime this year. It is an unusual combination and for the stock market, possibly a potent one. So I just think that's interesting. That was like an A1 story in the Wall Street Journal last week, a shortened holiday week that saw the market just rage all week long and, and some of the greatest hits were, were leading us there. That is the soft landing economic mm-hmm. bull case for stocks right now. Yeah. A hundred percent. And people have been making that point pretty consistently for the last, let's call it year or so, that this could be uh, the absolute ending of this entire thing. They can thread this needle. They can get us to this point where the unemployment rate doesn't spiral higher somewhere between four and a half, five percent Maybe it tops out a little north of 4%. The inflation rate, although still growing, obviously starts to continue to decline. That's a good thing. They're not massive layoffs getting back to my unemployment rate thing. And you're going to start to see a reacceleration of margins with inflation coming down because demand is still robust. Yes, I guess all of those things can happen, but There's still a lot of bogeys out there, and we haven't talked about the credit concerns out there just in terms of countries and their debt loads, United States not least of which. So there are a lot of things out there. I brought that up to Steve Eisman a couple weeks ago on Fast Money. He didn't seem to be at all concerned. And quite frankly, unless the credit markets start to get concerned, there's no reason for me to be concerned. But I'm telling you, that's out there as well, Dan Nathan. You and I, we came into 2024. I, I think we had a New Year's resolution. I know you're not one to do those sorts of things. So I'm no. just calling it. We said that, listen, we got a lot of things right in 2021 and 2022. And, and 2023 was a frustrating year because I think we got turned around a little bit with the Q1, with the Silicon Valley Bank and, and what that kind of monetary accommodation and, and some of the fiscal stuff that was going on. And it really just trapped us in, in our kind of bearish, mm-hmm. broad market view. And we said we're going to be a bit more constructive this year. And to be fair, and and some of the folks who listen to us every day and show up every day as we do here, they realize that there's some nuance to that sort of thing. I, I, I fully take getting a couple big things wrong and then also just never turning on the S&P 500. But this year, I think it's going to be a, a bit more opportunistic as it relates to individual stocks. I think we're going to see more dispersion in, in different names, especially in technology, as some really do get to harness the benefits of the, the AI investments that they've made and, and commercialize them and, and have that drop down to the bottom line where others are going to be revealed for what they are. It's just Johnny come lately is trying to ride a train. And then there's going to be sector stuff. Like, so here's one guy, and I want to get your take on this. So if we agree that maybe rates 
right now are not going to come down as much as, let's say, a lot of investors thought they were just a month ago, right? Might some sectors start looking appealing to you? Or if the flip side of that was, it's just say expectations for a rate cut start to pick back up for March. Might some sectors look appealing to you? Let's say like utilities, which have sold off 5% in a straight line. There's going to be opportunities in the stock market to make money on an intermediate term basis without getting the macro 100% correct. Yeah. And that was true to a certain extent in 2023 as well. There were pockets of opportunity without question. And I share your thoughts on 2023. I'll tell you that in retrospect, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic to a lesser degree, I thought that was going to be, and I'll use the word catastrophic for the economy and the broader market. It probably turned out to be the best that it happened, maybe not necessarily for the economy, but clearly for the market because of the liquidity injection we saw on the back end. I obviously did not take that into consideration or completely look past it. My bad, as they say. With that said, to your point, the rate stories in the rearview mirror, let's say rates just don't really move in 2024 the same way they moved in 2023, which I don't think is unreasonable given the moves we saw all throughout 2023. One has to ask themselves, what's going to set up? I think first thing people will turn to are the banks. They'll say we're in an environment now where banks can figure things out. Their balance sheets are fine. Maybe those holes in the balance sheets somehow were fixed by this rate move. I think to a certain extent, maybe this reacceleration in the industrial sector. But I still think healthcare, which again, at points last year was left on the roadside, is going to come back in a meaningful way. We've already seen the M&A picking up late last year, early this year. So yeah, you're right. There are a number of pockets, but then don't underestimate what potentially could happen in the energy sector. Again, if you start to see a, I don't want to say a reacceleration, but if inflation stays persistent and commodities get back on the horse for any number of reasons, geopolitical probably the biggest one. And again, demand is still at pre-COVID levels. Maybe the energy sector, which again has been left for dead, starts to pick up as well. I think that's probably one area, energy for one. I think healthcare on valuation. I think that if rates were to come down, let's say precipitously, and it could be for economic weakness, you'll see money maybe move back into consumer staples and utilities, as we just talked about. The bank's a little interesting here, Guy, because we had that huge reversal from JP Morgan Mm -hmm. from its opening gap after its earnings. And then we saw Bank America and Citi and Wells and some of the names that had been underperforming, let's say JP, really turn around and give it, give back most of the gains of the prior month or so. So the jury to me is still out. And, And again, this is all Everything that we're talking about right now, about new highs in the S&P and our ability to maintain them, I take you back to two years ago in 2022 when we had a lot of similar headwinds. We had uncertainty about a Fed. We had uncertainty about geopolitics, right? We had certain uncertainty about S&P earnings growth. And I don't see us in too different of a spot. In fact, the S&P is, what, 1.5% away from where we topped out. And all of a sudden, inflation fears picked up, right? The Fed and what they had to do to combat that only got more entrenched in markets and valuation and weight on the economy. And here we are, the exact same spot. And we have a greater dependence on a small group of stocks that have captured the enthusiasm about one of the biggest secular shifts in technology that you and I can remember in 20 years. To me, that does suggest that there's an accident waiting to happen as we get into earnings. Now, this week, it's going to be Netflix. Who cares? Okay, like, again, you and I threw that out of fang a long time ago because it's just an inconsequential name in market cap terms and everything like that. Intel, what they have to say, this is one of those potentially Johnny-come-latelys that joined the AI party late last year and had a massive run-up 
up. So let's see what they have to say. Mm -hmm. Because to me, if they do not execute well relative to expectations with AMD and let's say NVIDIA GPU space, that stock's going to get thrown out very quickly. And then at the end of the week, all eyes are going to turn to the consumer with American Express on the higher end. Like those three earnings, I think, are really important to get a read on the consumer, get a read on investor sentiment as it relates to valuation. What are you most focused on? Because obviously this time next week, all we're going to be talking about is obviously the MAG-6. Yeah, I agree with you. And listen, chips, obviously, Texas Instruments, we hear from this week. The move into chips has just been spectacular. And I get it to a point, but it's interesting. I don't want to belabor the point, but Taiwan Semi, if you look at their quarter year over year, look where the stock was last year, look where the stock is now. The stock's probably 20 something percent higher on earnings that are 20 something percent lower year over year. So there's a disconnect unless you say, you know what, everything was trough and their sort of guide for the year is going to reaccelerate things. Okay, I get that as well. And I understand the importance of Taiwan Semi, but American Express, and if you go to our Instagram page or mine or yours, you'll see that that American Express is what I'm really focused on this week. And the reason is, what are they seeing on the credit? Do they have credit concerns, loan loss provisions, those types of things, delinquencies, obviously a much more fluent client than a Discover Financial, but this is a barbell thing. And Discover Financial obviously saw something on their end. Is American Express going to start to see something on their end of the spectrum later this week? So I'm focused on that. This will be interesting to see how the market reacts on Wednesday after the closed Tesla reports. Now, one of the big bulls, Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley, who had, I think, a $400 price target. This stock is trading at $212 right now. I think it's all-time high guy in late 2021 was $400. Half of his valuation has to do with full self-driving and autonomy and robots and software and you know AI and all this sort of stuff, okay? So he just took down his numbers pretty dramatically. It's a supply-demand thing. Too much supply, waning demand, and therefore mm-hmm. you're going to put pressure on full self-driving. This story is going to end up being a lot like the iPhone story. The bigger the uninstalled base, the greater margin you're going to make on services, which is going to be full self-driving and all this other stuff. So he's taking down his estimates pretty dramatically for 2024. He's taken his price target down, I think, from 400 to 345 or something like that. So it'll be interesting to see if this company does come in line. Let's say the margins are a little weak. Let's say that they guide down a little bit, or at least the guidance suggests that there's going to be weaker demand. We know that they just had another price card. It'll be interesting to see with a stock down 20% in the last month, dramatically underperforming the S&P 500, how investors treat this. You and I and Danny Moses have made the case on this podcast probably dozens of times over the last year. The fundamentals have been deteriorating for this company. We've seen gross margins go from over a year ago, from 25% to 18 and a half or so for automotive and, and probably trending lower if Adam Jonas is right about supply and demand. So to me, why is this stock important? It was up 100% last year, despite the fact that earnings got ratcheted down fairly dramatically. And the fundamentals, in my opinion, competition in China and Europe is getting worse, right? But the stock rallied, but it's still well below those all-time highs. So how this stock reacts is really important to me this week, guys. The reaction to your point, and you've made this point, when fundamentals have mattered in this company four times minimum a year on the back of earnings, and then a few other times in terms of deliveries and those types of things, that's when the stock typically doesn't do particularly well. The rest of the time, when it gets caught up into FOMO, the excitement of the broader market, is when it starts to levitate. However, we've brought up this pennant formation in the stock. You talked about that all-time high. You have a major downtrend line and is still intact. The uptrend line over the last year or so 
has been violated to the downside, and now it feels a little bit broken. Yeah, I guess you could see rallies along the way, but that downtrend is still intact. And as much as it is an innovation story, it comes down to a lot of ways margins, and you've seen margins deteriorating. And I think there was a hope that lowering prices it would be offset by robust demand, but you're not seeing that. And at a certain point, that hurts margins. And they said a year and a half or so ago that margins would start to decelerate, but they wouldn't get down to legacy automakers margins levels. Guess what? We're precariously close from doing exactly that. Yeah. And and I guess, again, to your point, Guy, the last three times that they reported earnings, the stock has sold off at least 9% the day after. So the difference here, I would just say, is that the stock is down 20% in the last month. And that's a pretty difficult setup from a trade standpoint. I think the options market is implying at least a 7% move in either direction, but that one is on my radar. Last thing here, Guy, I just want to mention this because Danny Moses mentioned this a a bunch over the last few months or so. Take out Tesla from the MAG-7 and it's no longer magnificent, at least from the standpoint of what's going on with their fundamentals and, and the way the stock has really been stuck in the mud. If you look at it on a multi-year basis relative to the S&P 500 and when it was added to the S&P 500 a little over three years ago, it's down from that period while the S&P is up maybe 30% or so. But some of these names like an AMD that you want to look at on the back of, let's say, an Intel guy, if you look at that RSI and you've mentioned this on a million occasions, the stock traded as low as 90 bucks after they reported their Q3 results in late October, okay? The stock is now trading at $172. Just do the math. Pretty overbought. Like for a company like this to put up a quarter in guidance where the stock can go higher with an RSI relative strength index, where it is, it's, it's nearly impossible. They would have to do something that nobody is expecting to do. So let's just talk about where we are with some of these really beloved names right now. They seem almost too good to be true at a time where the S&P has done the impossible. It's gotten back to the all-time high. If you believe the whole secular growth story and there's this new paradigm shift and all the things you've heard now for the last year or so, that's fine. And you can continue to believe that without question. But with that said, at a certain point, stocks, regardless of what's going on, do get to levels that just don't make sense in terms of, as you said, relative strength index, stochastics, and the different things. And in terms of specifically a name like AMD, that's exactly the case. Not to, again, say anything bad about the company. It's a wonderful company, but people have been zigging when they should zag. I mean, remember, this is a stock a couple quarters ago, the people were unanimously bullish about at around 135. It obviously then traded basically straight down. This last quarter or so, when they reported knee-jerk reaction was to sell the stock, only to see, to your point, effectively double. So as bad as the setup is to push shorts probably in Tesla right now, and I think that was a point you're making, it's probably equally bad to lever your long positions in a name like AMD. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, and again, here we are, the market's open. It's trading very near 4,900. We know yeah. a lot of S&P strategists or strategists out there have 5,000 targets and the like that they were putting on in early December where we're almost there, people. It seems like there's a level of euphoria euphoria and comfortability about the Fed's path forward, despite this lengthening period of time that we've had this inversion on the 210 spread, despite what's gone on with China, despite, I think, concentration enthusiasm. And and again, in a small amount of names, and we're losing maybe one by one, and we might lose a few more over the next couple of weeks. So you and I are going to keep a close eye on that. And we're also really excited for us going down to Miami early next week to the iConnections Global Alts Conference. It's going to be a great vibe check on just how allocators are feeling 
feeling about allocating to managers, how managers are feeling about putting money to work. So that's going to be really interesting for us. You and I are going to be broadcasting market call from down there. We're going to be doing an on the tape down there. We're going to be doing a bunch of stuff on stage. We're going to be doing fast money for two days down there. Guy, are you excited to be down in Miami Beach next week? Thrilled, especially the time of year that it is. But yes, that's important. But more importantly, this is a conference where you have a few thousand people, very transactional in terms of what gets done. Allocators get lined up with people they're investing in. And it's a lot of fun to hear some of the excitement and enthusiasm about, again, obviously some of the different funds that are down there, some of the different ideas that are down there and what the allocators are thinking. So it's a great conference. We've been fortunate enough to be down there last year. I've been down in years past. And I think this could be one. Everybody talks about the Arizona conference in Davos and those types of things. But this is as important a conference as there is. And it's happening very early in the year. It's really interesting, Guy. When we were doing the preview of it last year, the sentiment was pretty dour, if you Mm -hmm. think about it. And we were wondering what the mood was going to be. And look what happened since then. Again, this will be really interesting for us to get a a sense of what the vibe is there among investors and allocators. and, And plenty of pundits will be down there, too. All right. So stick around for our conversation with Ron Biscardi. He's the CEO, founder of iConnections. And we're going to talk all things global alts. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast, guys. I'm Dan Nathan. This is a treat, Dan, joined by Ron Biscardi, my friend, your friend, CEO and founder of iConnections. As we mentioned earlier, we are going to be there next week. We were there last year. 
and we're thrilled to be back. Ron, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thank you for uh, giving me a chance to chat today. And and of course, I'm super excited to have both of you joining us next week in Miami. It's going to be one heck of a show. Well, it is. And it's interesting. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but our audience would be interested. If you think about the lead up to last year's conference, there's a lot of consternation, a lot of concern around some of the things that were happening, not only in the markets, but geopolitically leading up to the conference. And then last year's conference was an overwhelming success. This year, and I want to talk about the numbers and the metrics because they're off the charts, but a lot of euphoria going into this year, obviously into the conference as well. So before we get into the sort of the nuts and bolts of the conference, speak about the diametrically opposed years from this time last year to where we are now. I completely agree. We went into the start of 23 last year. I would say the industry was very optimistic. We saw it in all of our numbers and the meeting counts and the attendee growth over the prior year. And that optimism continued through definitely through the first half of 23. And then probably around the summer, we started to see pullback among fund managers who started to just express real concerns and struggles in fundraising. And this was pretty much across the board. The illiquid strategies, private equity, venture, real estate, they all were struggling to raise money. And of course, hedge funds at that time were also having a really hard time. And I think the central theme around that was the massive change in interest rates. I think investors just put the brakes on everything as they tried to adjust their portfolios for a non-zero interest rate world for 15 years. We've lived in this zero interest rate environment. And now that an investor can actually build a bond portfolio that makes sense, it's caused them to stop and rethink everything in their portfolios. That caused a lot of adjustments. We absolutely saw the impact of that with clients, especially in September and October. But then in November, the markets had a great month and we had a record December in terms of signups. One thing I'll say, though, that was interesting throughout that whole period our investor signups were the highest they've ever been. So even though from on, on the investor side of this thing, as they were adjusting their portfolios, they still clearly had a, a huge interest in meeting with alternative investment managers. So I don't think there's any sort of systematic shift away from alternatives. I think investors needed a minute to figure out, okay, what do I do in this new environment? And what's the right mix for my portfolio? But we ran about 150 to 200 investors ahead of last year's signups, pretty much from the summer through today. Let's talk about your vision. Take a step back. I, I, I don't want to say even in your wildest dreams, did you think you're going to have a conference of this magnitude? But knowing you the way I do, you probably thought this was a possibility. But go back. What was the opening that you saw? What was that void that you thought could be filled in terms of this industry? Because quite frankly, and I said it earlier in the show, this is one of the most important conferences of the year, and it takes place in the first month of the year. So our vision initially, we started the business in April of 20. So we were right at the beginning of COVID. And the vision was to provide a technology platform to connect the alternative investment industry. Because as you guys know, this goes all the way back to the crash of 29. When the SEC was created and all the rules were created that divided the investment world into registered products and unregistered products, the unregistered category of funds, which is where we play, are not allowed to market openly. So what our tech platform and our event provides is 
a compliant and to meet with each other and get to know each other and to do it in a safe way and, and in a way that complies with the law. So we always knew that this was a necessary service and technology. What we also knew was that the hedge fund industry was already really good at this. They were really good at capital introduction. The prime brokerage service providers in the market for years have been providing cap intro events to their hedge fund clients because there's great alignment between the PB business and the hedge funds that they serve. As those funds grow, the PB's business with them grows. There isn't an equivalent to that on the illiquid side. So a key goal for us was to bring cap intro to those illiquid funds, private credit, private equity, real estate, and venture being the four biggies. And I'm happy to say that when we look at our numbers compared to 2022's event, we are really getting there. In in 22, about 65% of the event was made up of hedge funds. Only 25% or so were illiquid strategies. And then the balance were long only. This year, 52% of the event are hedge funds and 38% are illiquid. So that is moving really nicely. And if you look at our speaker list, we've brought in some real heavy hitters on the illiquid side. And I think that's just giving us credibility in that market. And that market is now discovering this as a thing they just had never done before. Our listeners have gotten to know iConnection's name and, and a lot of your customers because they've been guests on, on our program, on our off the tape segment over the last couple of years. And again, it's interesting. You mentioned private credit and our listeners, our fast money listeners, let's say for Guy and me, that's not a term that they were hearing a whole heck of a lot about. Mm-hmm. We were covering it through a lot of intros through you guys on our podcast before we started talking about it on CNBC, which seemed every day, if you will. And when you talk about the content that you have programmed down there at the Global Alt and you talk about A-listers, it's off the charts that you can have this many folks who are this impactful within not just the investment standpoint, but from an allocator standpoint. And so one of the things, Guy and I are super excited. We're going to be doing Fast Money for two days down there with Melissa Lee, and we're going to be taking a bunch of the guests at the conference. A lot of the clients and speakers are going to be joining us on the show. We're going to be doing our Market Call podcast. We're going to be doing almost every podcast we do down there, and we're really excited about it. And just as a little preview, we have, I think, Guy, it's the first time that Steve Eisman, Danny Moses, Porter Collins, Vincent Daniel, they have been together since the big short. They're going to be on stage down there. I think they're going to be coming on Fast Money. And there's a whole host of other like A-listers. It's really going to be super exciting. And on our YouTube channel from Risk Versal Media, and I know iConnections is going to have tons of content, we're going to be broadcasting a bunch of this stuff here. So be sure to tune in for all of that. Ron, just from a networking standpoint, you're going to have thousands and thousands of meetings, okay? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to get all of these folks together at the Fountain Blue and like just the networking opportunity? I think Guy and I get it because we're down there, but there's things going down all day and night at this event for days. The the networking is off the charts. We've booked over 13,700 meetings so far. We expect to probably add somewhere between 500 and 1,000 more meetings. So we'll we'll definitely cross 14,000 meetings, which is absolutely a record. This is a number I'm really excited about. So our mobile app allows attendees to scan each other's business cards. So no one has to really carry business cards anymore. And then it goes into your contacts. You can export them, all that stuff. We decided why wait until you're in the building as they're confirming their meetings, let's let them exchange their business cards electronically in the platform leading up to it. We've exchanged over 17,000 business cards in the last 30 days, which is pretty crazy. There are at least 30 private events taking place outside of 
the core content and one-on-one meetings in the event. So that's sponsors and attendees creating cocktail parties and dinners and all kinds of things. We rented out the entire Fountain Blue facility. This has actually never been done before. I take that back. Victoria's Secret did their fashion show 16 years ago at the Fountain Blue, and they shut down the whole hotel for that. But that is the last time anyone bought out the Fountain Blue Hotel. So we have literally taken over every restaurant, every bar. And we also did the same thing at the Eden Rock next door because we just ran out of space and had to expand into the Eden Rock. So pretty much every ballroom in both of these facilities, it's about 150,000 square feet of conference space is being completely occupied by all the booths for these meetings. I started my career in 1986, and I've been to many conferences, many business trips. And there was a term that was created in the 1930s. I think it's called boondoggle. And it basically means an event without purpose, right? You just show up, but there's really nothing happening. And the iConnections conferences are anything but. Now, there's a lot of fun. There are a lot of people enjoying themselves, but it's also extraordinarily transactional in terms of what's going on, which is the linchpin to everything that happens at these conferences. Can you speak to that? You can say how many meetings, 10, 12, 14,000 meetings, all the different people are going to be there. But speak to the transactional notion of what happens at the iConnections conference. When someone first hears about our event, they hear it's in Miami, they hear it's at the Fountain Blue, they hear it's in January, and you see the smile come over their face. Oh, I get it. It's one of those boondoggle things. It could not be further from a boondoggle. The average meeting count in this event will probably hit 19 to 20 for the typical fund manager and the typical allocator. You are exhausted after doing 20 meetings spread across two days. And that's only the meetings that we are capturing in the platform. All of these people are doing breakfast, lunches, dinners, drinks. You go home after a week of global alt and collapse on the couch. It it is the farthest thing from a boondoggle. Our content day is also incredibly well attended and people are really excited about it. As you guys were saying, it is, it's a murderer's row of expertise in the investment industry. We've got Brad Gerstner, Bill Gurley, Anna Marshall, the CIO of the Hewlett Foundation, Harvey Schwartz, the CEO of Carlisle, Peter Thiel, Alexis Ohanian, Dan Loeb, Blythe Masters, Barry Sternlich, Jared Kushner, Eli Manning. It's a pretty amazing list. And I have to say, a lot of this it's the flywheel effect. We've built a strong reputation since we started the business. And now a lot of these people are just coming to us every year, wanting to be a part of it because they see the quality of it. And honestly, that list of names, like these people are super high performers. They are not going for a boondoggle. Like these people are going to serious events like the Milken Conference, the World Economic Forum. So we are really proud to have them joining us this year. And trust me, everyone leaving this event will be exhausted on Friday. Guy and I certainly were last year. Ron, talk to us a little bit away from the networking, away from the content. What are some trends that you've seen as far as over the last few years since you've created iConnections about where the money's coming from. Again, we have different pockets here in the U.S., whether it be the private credit space or we look out to Silicon Valley. There's been pockets over the last, call it 10 years, that have been very popular to be raising capital from, but they've come and gone as the interest rate environment has changed, as some of the secular kind of changes within these industries have changed. What have you seen over the last few years? Because again, I know that you guys co-host event in the Middle East, you spend time in Asia. What are some of the trends that I think so 
some of our listeners should be focused on about where money is going to be focused on next? I would say one of the biggest shifts I've seen in the last few years in this regard is towards the Middle East. Our industry, the biggest players in our industry, the Carlisles, the Blackstones, the Goldmans, they for years have had great relationships with the biggest funds in the Middle East. Down the next tier below that, not so much. And that is really changing. I am hearing story after story from funds of all different sizes. And we're doing an event in late February. We're partnering with the Ministry of the Economy in Dubai, who created an event called Investopia. We'll hold that in Abu Dhabi at the end of February. Go to our website if you want more information on it. But that event is to bring primarily funds and investors from the U.S. into Abu Dhabi to meet the funds that are based there, to meet with the government officials there. I am finding the Middle East unbelievably welcoming and ready to do business in a way that I've not seen before in my career. And we have a whole delegation from ADGM, the Abu Dhabi Global Markets Group, coming over to the event this year. We have a delegation from Saudi. So I am optimistic that while the Middle East has obviously been a part of the world that's had incredible turmoil, sadly still in uh, a lot of turmoil, but at, at a very high business level and government level, there is serious interest in fixing that problem and doing business with each other because everyone knows it's a lot better to do business together than it is to fight with each other. And at least in our industry, I I'm really proud, to be honest, of what I've seen. People are very welcoming, very open-minded, and trying to find ways to get to know and understand each other and do business together. And I hope that ultimately that'll be a great thing for the world. And the way, this is part of why I invited Jared Kushner to come and speak at this year's event. He's my closing keynote interview. And I found Jared to just be an unbelievably thoughtful, kind, reasonable person who was at the core of the Abraham Accords. And I'm excited to hear his perspective on how we can solve some of the problems there and get more focused on helping each other and doing business together. I think that's an extraordinarily thoughtful response to that. And I'm looking forward to all that as well. But I'll say this, I connections and everything that we just talked about, clearly your vision, but to the extent that one person cannot create something like this on his or her own, you've built an extraordinary team behind the scenes. And can you speak about basically all the work that goes into putting this conference on? Because I'll tell you, and I know this, once this conference ends, you get right back to business the week after preparing for next year. So talk about your team at iConnections. Guys, I can't say enough great things about my team. This is such an unbelievably demanding event to pull off because I was talking to someone over the weekend who has event experience and you have to set up a stage, you get all your attendees in a room, you set up the seats, then you break for lunch, you break for dinner. There's some complexity of the speakers having three stages running simultaneously as the first step of the event for a full day of content. You know, we've got about 140 speakers. And then to shift to running 14,000 meetings spread across all these ballrooms, hotels, the tech platform, the directional signs, the staff needed to make sure everyone gets to where they're supposed to be. You could never do this without an A-list team. And our team is just world-class. The feedback I get literally on a daily basis, I get emails and text messages from attendees complimenting my team. It's, it is the iConnections team is really the best in the world at doing an event of this kind of complexity. And I mean, we've always been solicited to help other events. 
And we've done that a lot since inception. We help Forbes with their Iconoclast event. We work with CNBC on delivering Alpha. We work with the SALT team on several events per year. And that has all gone really well. But I think in 24, you're going to see a few announcements where we are upping our game significantly to help a few events that are at a whole other scale. And I'm really excited about it. And uh, thank you to my team. And thank you, Guy, for giving me a chance to highlight them. They are they are absolutely the best in the world at this. Hey, Ron, before we get out of here, it'd be interesting. We started this conversation talking a little bit about the sentiment heading into last year's event. And so when I think about some of the things that people were worried about then, especially in the alternatives, crypto was one of them, right? We had just had this fabulous collapse of FTX and it seemed like there was going to be knock-on effects there. And there was a lot of real money that had been dedicated in the years prior to that area. And then think just like a month and a half later, we have Silicon Valley Bank go under. This was something that a lot of folks within the tech community took for granted, the stability of that organization or organizations similar to that. And I think back, now here we are, a year later, crypto seems to be on much better footing. Silicon Valley Bank was all but a, just a mirage as it relates to some of the trepidations that people had in and around the tech community here. And I think about where we are right now, things feel okay, which kind of makes me a little bit nervous. And you've been in this asset allocator game and the cap intro game for decades now. What are some things that our listeners should maybe have their antennas up a little bit about as they think about some of these areas? Because again, and I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, we were not talking about private credit the way we are now at this time last year. What are some things that, that might be on the radar that some of our listeners should keep an eye out for based on some of the speakers that we have and some of the allocators that are be coming to the event next week? Digital assets is fascinating to me. So digital assets in particular, I expected digital assets to be dead this year. Truthfully, if you had asked me mid 2023, I would have said, we're probably not going to have any significant percentage of the funds in the digital assets category. I would have been completely wrong. In 22, we had 17 digital asset funds in the event. This year we have 41. I think that's an incredible number. It's obviously not a huge percentage of the overall investment landscape yet, but the fact that it has survived this nuclear winter, the FTX debacle, this interest rate mess, it's incredible to me that they have that they have survived and they're performing about at the expected level that they should be in terms of the meetings that they're getting. So not only are they showing up at the event, but they're getting the requisite number of meetings given their percentage in the event. So I'm, and of course now with a Bitcoin ETF being approved, I feel like digital assets is probably going to have a resurgence. I think it's, that was a big step towards legitimacy among institutional investors. And we saw enormous interest in 22. Those 17 funds in 22, it was around 800 meetings. So they punched way above their weight in that 22 event. And unfortunately, that May, the bottom fell out of the crypto market. But it is still very much on the radar screen of investors. So that's definitely an area I keep an eye on. This year, another category that's punching above its weight, global macro. Global macro represents only about 4% of the funds in attendance but they're getting about 10% of all meetings. That's a very good indicator that flows are probably going to go that way. I'd say those are the two takeaways. And unfortunately, we've heard a lot about this, but PE is probably punching slightly below its weight in the sense that until, I think until there's a return to a solid IPO market so that we can see some exits from 
PE funds, from venture funds to replenish uh, cash on the LP balance sheets, you're just going to see slower movement in terms of fund allocations into those categories. But there's still plenty of activity, but I would say it's slightly off. And that lines up with, I think, a lot of what you saw in the second half of 23. Well, as Dan mentioned, we'll be broadcasting from the iConnections conference. We'll be doing Fast Money on Monday and Tuesday. Melissa Lee will be down there. I believe she's moderating a panel or two. We will also be broadcasting through on the tape market call. So be with us next week as we tell you what's going on at the conference. And I just want to say thank you, Ron, for your friendship and all the uh, belief that you put in Dan and I and all the people at Risk Reversal. We love our relationship together, and we look forward to seeing you next week down in Miami, Florida. Same here, guys. Thanks for the opportunity, and thanks so much for all the support. Thanks for getting the Big Short panel together. Obviously, that would have never happened without you guys. I'm really excited to to have the whole crew there, and it's going to be a great week. So thanks for being there. Fired up. Thanks so much, Ron. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.